<laughs> Hello, Emerging Writers. Welcome. We're so glad that you could join us today as we sip tea and discover our inner storytellers. My name is Stephanie, and I'm joined by my best friend, Kayla, and my sister, Jordan. Hello. Hi. Every week, we'll be inviting you to join us as we cuddle up in our blanket fort, drink tea, and discuss the intricacies of writing and how we can become the writers we dream to be. Today's topic for discussion, character relationships. As we discussed in chapter two, characters make or break a story, and part of what helps us define a character is their relationship with others. Uh, people are social beings, even those of us who are introverted, like myself, who deeply enjoy prolonged periods of time alone, also still desire relationships with others. We tend to gravitate towards people who are good at connecting with other people and shy away from people who push others away. And we want relationships. We need them. This is also true in the media we consume. Kayla, would you like to take over for us? Yeah, I think that writing good relationships and writing compelling relationships is so important in any sort of novel or story because having a main character love someone or care about them or hate them or find them irritating is a really easy way to have the reader share similar feelings. And likewise, if you have a romantic interest or a best friend or a mother care about and love the main character, it helps to highlight that main character's uh, positive attributes. And it, it's just a really great way to make readers better and more emotionally invested because uh, relationships are so integral to human life and connection. And so as a reader, those are the things that I latch on to the most and first. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's a nice way to add a layer of emotion and care to your story and not have it just be magic points or action or adventure or mystery. What do you think, Jordan? Well, in my own story, I've made it a point to add a lot about my character's parents and her relationship with them. And I've received a lot of positive feedback based on, or comments, I guess, based on the relationship she has with her parents because it's very nurturing and they're her adopted parents. So it's it kind of rounds her out in a way, I think, and gives her a support system that she wouldn't alternately have if I hadn't decided to bring importance to those relationships and do phone calls and little, little things that she talks about with her parents. I think family relationships are so easy to undervalue when you're writing. It's really easy to focus in on the romantic interest, on the villain, and on the sidekick or assisting care support character if you will and I think that having strong family support system or having it very much not there in an interesting way can add so much depth to a character and to their story and it makes you curious about their backstory because in most cases family has been there since you've been born and so there's a rich history that you can pull into that. One thing that I hadn't really considered, we talked about this a little bit in a previous episode when we were talking about romantic relationships and setting like teaching good examples or, or whatever for people. While I was doing research for this episode, um, I came across someone's post who was asking how to write healthy relationships, like parental relationships, because they didn't grow up with one. So they didn't even really know what was considered normal and like what was safe and what wasn't and what was considered abuse because it was so normalized for them. And I hadn't considered that writing healthy relationships would be beneficial to people to read. Like I did and I didn't, you know? Mm -hmm. 
I think that each family dynamic is so individualized and quirky and either unhealthy or healthy, but um, so normalized to you because it's the only family dynamic you've grown up with. It's what you're accustomed to since you've been born, that it's really hard to step away from that as a writer and say, how do I want this character's family dynamic to be and what is healthy or unhealthy in a really uh, unbiased way. Because there's definitely good and bad that I've had in my family life and in my experience growing up that's contributed to my life in different ways, but that's not necessarily the same thing I want to give my character. An important part of the parental and sibling just overall family dynamic relationships is it provides like a, a backstory foundation for your character and explains why they might react in the way they do or see the world in the way they do. Some of the most impactful stories to me have such great sibling family relationships. I really like when a movie or a book or a show gets them really well done. One that I can think of is... Um, a movie I watched on Netflix, To All the Boys I've Loved Before, <laughs> they had really, really good sister dynamics mm -hmm. in the family. And it, it really endeared me to the whole movie because it was so realistic and messy in a good way. And it made me think of my own relationship with my siblings. And I think bringing that aspect to a book is, it can add a lot of fun and lightness and make it more relatable if you can write good family dynamics I remember when I watched that Netflix special and I'd found out you had seen it, we talked about how well done the sister yeah. dynamics were. Mm -hmm. I found the sister dynamic and family dynamic of that almost more compelling than the romance, even though it was a mm -hmm. romantic comedy. Mm -hmm. In general, that movie's just heartwarming. Yeah, I wanted to watch it the other day, but then I got busy. But it's a really good one. It's definitely uh, makes you feel good and they did something very right with it. I really do think a well-done family dynamic or sibling dynamic can engage me in a way that not a lot of writing and relationships can, because to me it's so rare. One book that really set the tone for that for me was Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss, which I have probably, probably mentioned before, but the first big chunk of that book is him retelling his childhood and the way he spoke about his uh, family, friends, and his parents was really endearing and felt so true in a way that not a lot of writing feels. I can't personally speak on, on this. I borrowed the book and I started to read it and then it was just, you know, that time in your life where you're like, I'm going to read this and then you don't. <laughs> and eventually I just gave it back because it seemed like it was never going to happen. Maybe someday you'll read Name of the Wind and I'll read Green Rider. Maybe someday I'll get through all of the other books sitting on my shelf that I've been meaning to read. That's relatable. That whole bookshelf basically is books I haven't read yet. This is great for an audio. <laughs> it's I have a, a small bookshelf, bookshelf behind me that it's you like can't see. At least 40 books. 32. You know what? Real close. You know what? It's not at least 40. I'm just dramatic, okay? No one had to know. Well, we're not keeping any secrets here, Kayla. We're laying it all out. So another thing in the relationships I think is important is friendships. Because if you have strong friendships, I think that's almost as good as family relationships because 
you really can see a side of your character they may not show to their family with their close friends. I I know at least I am very different and more genuine with my friends than I am with my family because they already know all my weird stuff and we've connected over lots of things and there's no judgment there or they wouldn't be my friends. So Yeah, we chose you. Well, yeah. I didn't. I actually didn't. I was thrust upon you, Stephanie. You thrust yourself upon me. <laughs> you know, not today. That was going to be my comment that you get to choose your friend, so it's even more powerful. But no, you just took it away. You had to make it weird. Here's the thing, actually. I didn't choose either of you. <laughs> uh, you chose me, Kayla, and Jordan was thrust upon me because of family. So it's the best kind well, of friend, really. I chose both of you, so it's true in my perspective with my friendships. What I'm saying is I probably don't love either of you. Oh, get out. You do. Otherwise, <laughs> you wouldn't put us through this podcast stuff if you didn't love us. You'd just find more reliable friends. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if this is a good example of Steph loving us. <laughs> How many times have I got all caps? <laughs> or at least very sternly written text. <laughs> Guys, hurry up. We need to record. When is that artwork coming, Kayla? I'm releasing it Wednesday. <laughs> well, you know, life's hard. You know, it just takes a really long time to get something done when I don't do it ever. <laughs> I made progress on it like two months beforehand. And then I forgot about it. And we didn't have a deadline. And so it turned into 12 hours in like two days. <laughs> and now it's done and up and beautiful. I agree. All right, time for a slick segue back into what we're talking about. Yes, since we are the queens of rabbit trails. Um, platonic relationships and friendships. <laughs> right. Um, I think if you're wanting to explore different aspects to your character, having them build strong friendships is important. I've been trying to do that with my story, building friendships, not only romantic relationships, and finding out ways for a platonic relationship to give them something they're missing, or a way to grow, or even just an example of what they could be and something for them to aspire to be and strive for. I think that helps drive your plot if you can find someone that inspires them, and it doesn't have to be romantic. Yeah, a lot of times when you say relationship, people's automatic response or thought is romantic, but it doesn't need to be. There's a lot of other types of relationships that are equally as important and equally as compelling. And really, you're going to write them the same way, like the the relationship arc is going to move the same way as with a romantic one. You'll just maybe have different situations sort of happen. Like, obviously, they're not going to start kissing by the end of their <laughs> strong friendship. I mean, depends on the friendship. Yeah, true. That's fair. I mean, I've had those. <laughs> but mm -hmm. I think you do build different sorts of tension and momentum with friendships. Well, you're probably not going to be building sexual tension. Yeah, I mean. I will say with friendships, too, it's really easy to start the story with them already being friends. Whereas with romantic interests, that's a little trickier. Most people like to build the romantic interest into a full arc. 
Mm-hmm. But with a friendship, you can already start as close friends, and they can be someone that holds your character a little bit accountable to their aspirations or to reality or to like their own safety. I think friends can be a really good like way to bounce back away from really heavy action danger. Like I'm gonna throw my whole life away for this person or this cause, mm-hmm. and then the best friend is like, "No, I love you. I care about you." In a way that's a little bit more genuine isn't the right word, but with a friend. Friendship, you're continuously choosing the other person in a way that's different than family or romantic interests. You still are, but um, there's a little bit more of that built-in commitment. Yeah. Like when you're someone's girlfriend or wife, that's, uh, I'm going to be with you until we die or until I break, break this commitment. Whereas a friend doesn't have that. It's day-to-day choice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's especially the case with the way romance stories are most often written because they're very like fiery and love at first sight and very like teenage viewpoint of love and less of the realistic how love actually ends up growing as an adult so the way that the stories handle them are going to be very different between romance and friendship i think romance and love can become this very idealized thing in the same way that, like, action and battle and magic can. Mm -hmm. It's pretty rare that you find a book or a story where it's written just as gritty as it is in real life. All of the ups and downs, all of the, like, you know, being upset over dishes or over something mundane (laughs) or feeling like they don't care about you in quite the same way or spend enough time a lot of that is glossed over in stories but I feel like in with friendships it's often a little bit more a part of the story it's glossed over unless it serves a very specific purpose to like tip the edge into that part of the plot where they're at their downhill Mm, that they can move up from yeah I really like when something does get into the nitty-gritty of a romantic relationship, though, it's kind of refreshing to read mm-hmm. because so much of media is very pretty and sparkly and they've polished it up. It's nice when you find something that's relatable in a romantic relationship. Yeah, I want I want to see romantic relationships develop naturally. Like, they don't have to start off thinking, oh, yeah, this is the love of my life. <laughs> I mean, in real life, that's not really what happens. You might think, oh, this person's pretty attractive. Kind of interested in them. Maybe something will happen. And then maybe it won't right away. And maybe you guys will start off as just friends. Or maybe if it's fantasy and you're busy trying to save the world and not die, (laughs) perhaps that's not going to be the first thing on your mind. Oh, like, uh... Just like that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I am really throwing in the, the good guns today. I forgot the names. Um... Like Steve Rogers and Sharon Carter ah. kissing after his old dead girlfriend's funeral. So mm-hmm. lovely. Mm-hmm. That was well thought out. If we're going to talk about Marvel a little bit, wait, Steve Rogers is Marvel, right? Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. that's a good example of the point I'm about to make in that I've seen maybe five of all of the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies And they're just randomly chosen where I'm taken to that movie or it sounded good. And I would very much like to see 
the new Spider-Man sequel, and my girlfriend has banned me from it unless I watch Avengers Endgame and like three <laughs> other Avengers related movies. So you're about to get a little bit more of an informed friend about Marvel things. Awesome. We will have so much more to talk about. This episode, though, only loose information is in my brain about <laughs> Steve Rogers. <laughs> I feel like you could have just stopped that sentence at only loose information is in my brain. And then it could have been just branched over all of us, really. Well, maybe that's just my brand. Loose information, no notes, no research, the unreliable artsy friend. <laughs> <laughs> so just... on the flip side, on the flip side, we have enemies. And wow. I don't mean... Smooth. <laughs> smooth transition. So smooth. I like it. You should. I it, feel like we didn't really even finish talking about romance because I can rant. Do you have more? So, oh, you yeah. weren't. So I just assumed we needed to move on. I don't know. Somehow, I just keep sidetracking it because I'm not going off notes or research. I'm just saying what comes to my brain because this week has been busy. Yeah, Kayla, I think you should just get out. <laughs> you should just leave. This oh. is your house, but you should leave. I'll go work on my painting for my girlfriend's birthday that's probably gonna be late. Good thing this gets released after. Anyway, yes. <laughs> I have a couple of things that I can rant about with how romances are usually paced. Yes, that was the correct wording. In my in my head, I saw the word paste like a like a substance, like a goo. And I was like, <laughs> that's not the right word, Stephanie. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> um, which are contrary ways of doing it, but both I equally hate. One is hate to love, that story progression. I'm so irritated with seeing the whole I hate them at the beginning <laughs> and then by the end they're boning. It's so annoying. Every once in a while it can work, but it's so overused it's usually done very unrealistically, and I know you guys read the Harry Potter fan fictions, and I'm sure the Draco Hermione stuff is a large portion of that <laughs> because of his character. <laughs> yeah, it is. I wasn't going to defend it, though. I shame read those. Those are my guilty pleasure. I'm not going to say it's a good story, but I like it, and I read it a whole lot. And I will say one thing is mostly on this podcast we talk about good stories and good writing but there is something to be said about an engaging story that's trash garbage but fun to read true and a lot of romances that i consume are in that camp there i guess are situations and where it can be handled correctly i guess um it just depends on how it's written like and how it's paced in the end because if they're going from, I hate them because they're a terrible person or whatever, and then through, like, experiences together eventually like each other, then I guess that's fine. Or if they had, like, a misunderstanding at first and that's why they didn't like each other, then I guess, like, it can be worked through. But a lot of times it's just they hate each other because of their personality, and that's not a thing that's going to be changing. That's really true. I also think I love... When someone misunderstands a character, 
particularly romantically and then it gets worked out and that plot device but so rare does the misunderstanding make sense or feel realistic yeah usually it's like real humans aren't that dumb (laughs) what why did you think they were a jerk just because they were quiet to you why did you then grow to hate them because of it that's not how people are. He was reading and I said hi and he didn't say hi back. It's because he was ignoring me and he's a jerk. Next time I see him, I'm going to hit him on the shoulder because I hate him and need him to know. It's like, no, that's not what people do. <laughs> yeah, it can really easily devolve into weird melodrama like a soap opera that doesn't actually make sense or feel realistic. Yeah. When I'm reading something like that, usually fan fiction, because if I'm reading an actual novel like that, I'll be like, "Mm, no. (laughs) But uh, when I'm reading something like that and it starts to get really dramatic like that, my head starts to envision it like soap operas (laughs) with the dramatic lighting and like dramatic phrasing that go along with like a good CW soap opera. That's fantastic. (laughs) I'm like, oh, this is Riverdale. But different. <laughs> Let me dive in now. <laughs> Usually when I run into that stuff, it just gets closed out. <laughs> it's just taxing for me to read. Like, it's exhausting to read about unnecessary tension, I guess. I don't know. That makes sense. I'll hate read it. Like, <laughs> I don't enjoy it. I get angry. Sometimes if the misunderstanding or dramatic action is so bad, I close the book and have to walk away. And I just walk around my apartment until I feel less mortified for those characters and can pick it up again. Oh, yeah. There was something I was reading. I think reading. Maybe it was watching. I don't know. It kind of blends together in my brain recently that had some really awkward, awful thing going on. And I was just like, oh. I do not want to do this. This is annoying. You could fix this so easy. Why did you let this go on so long? (laughs) This is a little bit of a shame reveal, but I was reading a fan fiction where they were having sex throughout like throughout like 10 chapters and still thought they hated each other when both of them were falling in love with the other person and were convinced the other person hated them. And I kept reading. <laughs> that's such a hard thing, those slow burns where people go back and forth about, <laughs> about their feelings and can't, like, admit them. That can easily get dragged out too long for me. I have to limit that to a couple chapters. I can deal with it for a while, but if it's just constant back and forth and they're constantly in their head thinking, no, I don't deserve this person. They couldn't love me. That drags on and I so hate it. <laughs> Like, as as a human who is an adult and fully functional, like, just express how you feel. Tell mm-hmm. someone your emotions and feelings towards them. And, like, that's how I try my best to behave. That's what I expect from the people in my life. And so that's how I want to write my characters. I feel like being afraid to reveal your feelings is such a lame plot device. There's a couple of instances where it makes sense like if someone is not straight and they're gonna reveal it to someone they don't know Mm -hmm. is queer or if like someone or if you're like doing a historical fantasy or historical fiction where they're in different classes like things like that where 
you admitting those feelings to someone can put you in a dangerous position. That makes sense as a plot device. But if it's two people in, like, the 21st century who both know that, like, they're the same, like, sexuality or whatever, there's no reason for that to be a plot device. None. I would say keep in mind your character's ages because in high school and younger I definitely fell into that category of I can't let them know that I like them then they'll know now as an adult though I'm like well why not just tell them and then we all know (laughs) and then if it's not gonna go anywhere it's not gonna go anywhere either way that's really true because I forgot how dumb I was as a teenager (laughs) so everything I said just stands if you're over 19 and if your if your characters are over 19 i stand by what i said maybe over 21 okay 19 is still really young and your brain doesn't even fully mature and start thinking about like consequences until you're like 25 yes i have finally hit that point and i'm like oh i was so dumb for a while i made a lot of life decisions in that time hmm. <laughs> you're finally a fully developed human being Kayla and I are still getting there. We're still blobs of human essence. And I have seven and five-year-old children, and I have just now realized that I'm an adult human being. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, good thing that uh, it's happening during their formative years. I'm glad I have two years yet to go before I count as a real human. (laughs) (laughs) so many poor life choices to make before then how do i fit it all in <laughs> so many things i can do wrong <laughs> the world's my oyster <laughs> i think that with your you have to remember the ages of your characters and try to keep what we just said in mind and keep them true to what their age is capable of mentally mm-hmm. and everything because it's awkward to read an adult who's behaving like a child it's also awkward to read a child who behaves too much like an adult because they do not have a frontal cortex they're not capable of thinking through their actions so you have to keep that in mind i think genius children are really hard to read yes that's very hard (laughs) to round out and give them things that make them still a child reading a child that doesn't feel like a child like It gets me out of the fiction so quickly. Um, And it's hard because writing children is hard, putting in the right amount of innocence and stupidity. But ingenuity at the same time. Because kids are really smart in their own kid logic way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, innocence doesn't necessarily mean kindness. Because there can be a lot of cruelty that children do to other children just because they're not fully developed yet. Mm-hmm. And so that's really hard to balance, right? Which yeah. is why there's not children in my book so far. <laughs> I haven't even attempted to write children. I don't know if I could. I have a little girl in mind in my story, and I don't know if she's going to make it. I <laughs> <laughs> don't know if she's going to make the cut. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But she has this cool little, like, dragon pet, and that's so awesome (laughs) that she needs to be there. I was gonna... Never mind, I can't reveal things, but she was gonna be there, and I I just don't know. (laughs) I think they're really tricky to write. This has nothing to do with romantic relationships, but this is where we are now in the conversation, I guess. Certainly the children have nothing to do with romantic relationships. (laughs) Yeah, definitely not. Hardline. 
Relationships with children. We can talk about that, though. That's true. Um, Being able to have a character take on a mentor role to a child, I think, is really interesting and provides a lot of complexity to that. Not only that relationship dynamic, but to that character. It gives them a little bit of respectability and makes the reader more empathetic to them. Mm. Adding a soft spot towards, like, a niece or daughter or something can be overused, but if it's done right, can really humanize them. I think uh, an element to that that I don't see very often, and maybe that just has to do with the type of media I consume, but taking a character that's in their own ways kind of immature and then having to take on those responsibilities by mentoring a child, and then that's their motivation for growth as a character... I think uh, one thing that comes to mind that I really loved was Lilo and Stitch, Mm. Uh, Lilo and Nani's relationship of this, like, I think she's Mm -hmm. 19-year-old sister trying to take on a parental role and caretaker role to her younger sister, and the frustration and the little failures that happen with that, but still the love between them, I felt like that was really done. Really done. Really done That was really done. It was really done. Nice and crispy. It's it's nice when writing gets finished. That's good. That doesn't (laughs) always happen. I agree, though. That relationship is very good. They did a good job exploring a different dynamic than a lot of children's cartoons usually have. Mm Mm-hmm. Especially if you look at some of the other sister dynamics that happen in Disney movies. I feel like there's a lot of sibling rivalry and bad sibling relationships. Yeah, Elsa and Anna, where miscommunication is their entire dynamic for 20 years. Yeah. Like, how is, how, how? Not not to uh, get on a high horse calling Frozen unrealistic, but... (laughs) (laughs) That's unrealistic. How did they interact for 20 years and never form a dynamic and relationship where it makes, even if it was just 10? Yeah. Contrarily, how did they not interact yeah. when it seemed like they were the only people who lived in that whole <laughs> mansion? Yeah. Or like The Little Mermaid, where Ariel has like nine sisters and doesn't have a bond with any of them. Yeah, she doesn't like go to talk to any of them. They're all just sort of there to exist as like representations of the seven seas. Who's like, hey, that'd be cool, right? <laughs> and then that's that it. Is. Yeah. yeah, they never address that. Even in the later movies, she doesn't talk about her sisters or anything. So one thing I like to use when I'm plotting out different characters to interact with my main character are things called character archetypes. And an archetype is a recurring theme or a setting, symbol, or type of character that appears in lots of types of media, regardless of the genre or the style. So it'll be in art or literature or movies There's hundreds of them, and even some sub-archetypes to the main ones if you want to get really specific, but I think if you're struggling with side characters, you should consider whether they fall into an archetype so you can find out the best way for them to impact your character. One that's especially popular today with all the comic book movies coming to life is the hero archetype, and at their core, the heroes are morally good, and they stay true to themselves no matter what their struggles are. Uh, Some examples I have of those are like Steve Rogers or Superman. 
Do you guys have any hero characters you can think of? I'll be honest, I really don't because I don't tend to read such a morally superior and good people. I tend to read about uh, more gray zone, Mm -hmm. morally ambiguous. Gray zone. Oh, gray zone. Grism. I was like, like, you just make up a new word. How dare you misunderstand me? (laughs) I read a lot of morally ambiguous ambiguous gray zone sort of characters i like to read my trash and my garbage (laughs) um it is really refreshing to consume media about someone who's just good who tries to be good i feel like that's particularly true in part uh in current times and part of why it's becoming popular again because there's so much uh complexity to living and to politics and to our uh, 2019 that just reading or watching something about a hero who just does good and tries their best can be really uh, heartwarming. That's so interesting because it would be the opposite for me of most of the stuff I read, like high fantasy stuff in past uh, usually had characters who were less morally dynamic, I guess. Like they were I'm the hero. I'm going to do my best to make these hero decisions. Nowadays, there, there's more gray zone characters who are founded more in like realistic humanity, like Game of Thrones. Everybody's pretty humanly realistic, with the exception of some being especially evil and heinous. Um, but I guess so for me, it's more refreshing to see characters who don't necessarily fit that type. Like, I enjoy both. I enjoy The Legend of Zelda, and as much as your protagonist doesn't have a personality, because that's just what Nintendo likes to do, he's definitely, like, the hero, and that's it, you know? Yeah. I think video games in general are a really great place to look at for archetypes. There's a lot of uh, pretty archetypal basic characters, because you put so much into it through the way you play the game. Obviously, there's more complex characters in some video games, but as a medium as a whole, I think they make good use of archetypes. For example, Sora, I think, is really great for a hero, but also for more of an innocent. Yeah, actually, the innocent is another common archetype that people use, and that's kind of a character whose purity and optimism stands out in a setting that's normally full of darkness. Uh, They're usually kind and trusting to a fault. Mm. A lot of the Disney princesses fall in this category, and like Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz or Henry from Once Upon a Time fall into that as well, being that overwhelmingly positive, innocent person who just wants to do the right thing and wants things to go their way, and you have to kind of show them that the world isn't as good as they think it is, and it's full of things that are more gray. Mm -hmm. That's definitely a good example for Sora from Kingdom Hearts then. I think uh, Disney princesses hitting on that, too, made me realize that the innocent is an archetype I see in a lot of children medium media, <laughs> media, <laughs> because you want to have kids look at the world through a story where someone really believes that there is goodness and hope. I think the innocent can be a really refreshing archetype to base a character on, because even an adult literature and stories it's nice to to have someone genuinely believe 
mm-hmm. that things can work out. And it's even nicer when you get a reader to go, no, they're not going to work out. And then you can turn the plot in a way that still ends happily. Yeah. I can't think of specific examples of that off the top of my head, but I have read quite a few uh, books and uh, fantasy adventure, supernatural, kind of that genre, where I really genuinely was like, yeah, no, things aren't going to work out. Everyone's going to die and I'm going to cry a whole, whole lot. (laughs) And then, you know, maybe there's some darkness, there's some death or bad things, but it ends up okay. I feel like doing that realistically can be a lot better story than just, yep, everyone died and everything's terrible. Go go back into your real world now because the book's over. Yeah. And uh, I think that works well when you have a character who is an innocent within the storyline. Yeah, that kind of unpolluted, optimistic point of view. It's kind of interesting. I'm sure it would be annoying to deal with, and I'm sure there's a lot of pitfalls that come from using a character like that, but I do think that they're very inspiring and help maybe motivate your hero character to see the world the way that that character is seeing it. In the story I'm writing right now, the ex-girlfriend is kind of that role, and the main character, that's part of why the relationship didn't work out, because the main character is such a, like, pessimist. (laughs) And it's been really interesting in trying to write that in a way where the ex-girlfriend doesn't just seem like an idiot or a fool. (laughs) Because I feel like a lot of times you associate positivity and optimism and innocence with foolishness. Yeah, for sure. I mean, look at Sora. (laughs) Kingdom Hearts, the biggest idiot I can think of. (laughs) Another archetype I think that's well used in a lot of things is the mentor and that's usually someone that's older than the main character a lot of times someone elderly and it's usually a person who's an outsider to society or maybe is viewed as weird or different and basically their main purpose is to help the main character succeed at their goal and give them advice or protection I think Um, Gandalf is a good example of this from Lord of the Rings he's kind of a weird old wizard and He does his little semi-magical things to help Frodo get the ring all the way to uh, Mordor. I thought you were going to say he does his wizard things. (laughs) He does his wizard things (laughs) like a wizard. I'm so afraid to talk about Lord of the Rings at all because I've read The Hobbit and I've watched the movies, but I'm not a super fan and I haven't read the full depth of the books and there's super fans out there and I don't want to say something dumb about it. <laughs> yeah. Stephanie and I were just talking about that earlier actually because we both haven't really sunken into it too much. Yeah. From what I understand, you know, big disclaimer here, please don't hate me if you're a Lord of the Rings fan and listening to me talk right now, but uh, Gandalf has magic that doesn't need explained and it doesn't really need like a magical system and so he's a really great mentor and assistance and aid that you know you don't know what you can expect from him and kind of the moon's the limit except of course he has limits and fails at times then he comes back (laughs) (laughs) but it's it's great to have uh if you use it with restraint and only in a couple of spots. It's nice to have a character 
or magic or something like that that can kind of assist unexplained and that's beyond the the grasp of knowledge of the main character and the mentor is a great place to put that it can kind of write you out of some plot some plot holes and roadblocks <laughs> yeah i feel yeah. like the mentor is handled typically in one of two ways one is they're just a side character that's there to give the protagonist some sort of direction or information that they need that's like necessary in order for them to move forward and then oftentimes they're killed off because they know too much and the story would be over too quickly if they were still around <laughs> yes <laughs> or the mentor is either the main protagonist or one of them and being a mentor is part of their journey or like being a mentor is an equal influence on them and their character um like this isn't Going back to the video games again, <laughs> a really popular one in the last few years has been The Last of Us, which was a PS4 exclusive, and it's like a zombie apocalypse type thing, and your main character has to be a mentor to this girl, and he's got that like stereotypical gruff guy personality, and you see him kind of like soften because of her, and I feel like that's one of the other more popular ways mentors are handled. Mm -hmm. That kind of reminds me of Bobby Singer from Supernatural. He's kind of yeah. a gruff, grumpy old guy, and through working with Sam and Dean, he kind of softens up and eventually loosens his stance on not helping and not doing things, and kind of it rounds him out, and he does a lot to help them in their plights, and he's got all the research and the little things that they need an outside source on. I forgot the supernatural existed until you just mentioned it. <laughs> and, like, definitely as a teenager, I watched the first... I don't know, eight to ten seasons. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, I went on a bender with it once. I did too. I think I got to season eight or nine and then I got bored. Yeah, um, I feel like stuff, serial fiction like that, that just keeps coming out again and again, I go into and out of it and it's like, oh, I know those characters, I know that world, I'll pick it up again for a season or two but it never ends, and so then I get bored with the same dynamic. Yeah. Um, I forgot how long ago it started until you said that you binged it in high school and there was, like, ten seasons. I think they were like, like, 16 or oh, something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it started when I was young. young. <laughs> yeah, I got into it when a Super Hulock on Tumblr was a thing, ah. which was Supernatural, Doctor Who, and Sherlock, as the three big, giant, giant fandoms. Such an interesting idea to cross over those worlds because they actively denounce that the other could possibly exist. <laughs> yeah. But anyway. Yeah, yeah, that was a huge tangent. Um, I do think that maybe Doctor Who is kind of a good example because I feel like the Doctor is often a mentor to his... Com is companions the right... Yes, that's what they call it now. It was like assistant yeah. in the old one when it was more sexist. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a huge Doctor Who fan, but I do feel like there's moments and episodes where that's done pretty well. The more it's gone on, the more there's like an equal exchange sort of thing going on. Like they humanize him more each time. I don't know. Make him less of an archetype genius. 
Yeah. I do think Bobby Singer from Supernatural is a really good example of mentors because he feels so human. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he feels like a fully fleshed out character, but I suppose if you have 10 seasons of a show, it's pretty easy to accomplish that. that. It's interesting the degree of change that happens throughout that show. Like, don't the boys end up kind of mentoring the devil? What, Crowley or something like that? I just know they killed off my favorite side character and I rage quit and refuse to ever watch it again. Hey, you never know. They might have come back. Nobody stays dead in Supernatural. Right? The next time Felicia... I think... That's kind of a spoiler. Oh, yeah. No spoilers. I think the, um, the reason I stopped watching that was... They occasionally just rehashed old bad behavior between the boys, like, keeping a secret from each other or doing something stupid like that. And I was like, okay, if it's been, like, nine seasons and you're still making them not trust each other completely when they've gone through so many world-ending events, I can't do this. They've literally died for each other a dozen times or more. And they're still going to say... same episode. (laughs) No, I'm going to just keep this a secret. They don't need to know, even though that's gone so badly so many times. (laughs) So I agree. And I do think, like, you shouldn't go back and forth that much. There should be character growth. But there is something to be said about watching characters not grow and watching them hit the same patterns again. And I don't think Supernatural does it that well, but I do think it can be engaging and interesting as a moral to a story if it's a shorter thing, because 13 seasons is too much for it to go back and forth. But it's interesting to watch characters live out a life and learn lessons, except they don't really learn them and they don't really evolve. It's kind of realistic. I've read some short stories and things where that was kind of the moral in the end. And it was really interesting to read because normally it is all about character growth and arcs. I think the way that short stories and more novel length stories are handled um, allow for those discrepancies. Like you can have characters not really grow and learn in a short story. But once you're invested in a full length novel, if the character doesn't make any change by the end, it's going to feel pretty unsatisfying. Like you went through this whole long journey with them for nothing mm. oh yeah it's it's super unsatisfying in a longer piece of work that's why it's so frustrating and unsatisfying and supernatural maybe mm-hmm. i didn't convey that well <laughs> but um yeah if your characters aren't moving forward and if the relationships aren't moving forward it feels pretty unsatisfying as a reader which if that's intentionally what you're trying to make the reader feel It can be done well, but it's pretty rare. And you need to have something else built in to not leave them unsatisfied with the whole story. Yeah, Yeah. something has to make a change or be different if your character isn't going to grow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One interesting archetype that often doesn't have a good character arc is a villain. Um, And that's usually just the person who makes trouble for your character or the world they live in. Um, a lot of story types have some sort of big bad guy whose main goal is to make things difficult and hard and ruin everything for your character. Um, but I think that's a topic that we need to delve into more. So 
I think we should end this here. Well, then I guess now we'll pass the conversation off to you guys. Uh, How do you handle character relationships? What are some that you enjoy reading about the most? Join our Facebook group, Writers Emerging, or follow us on Tumblr, Instagram, and Twitter. Links in the description. We look forward to seeing you next week where we talk about villains. Happy writing!